This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Our church is essential And should they stay open during this pandemic? Should they remain online? And for how long should they offer only drive-through services? We have seen a lot of legal wrangling over these issues in the last couple of weeks, with many judges ruling against the churches that seek to minister to the public in some way beyond the Internet and object to what they see as an unconstitutional lockdown. Well, now Liberty Council is calling for churches to reopen on May 3rd, along with what the Trump administration is beginning to do. The event is called Reopen Church Sunday. We're going to hear more more about it now from Liberty Council founder and chairman, Matt Staver. Matt, so good to have you with us. How are you? Very good. Good to be with you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about May 3rd and what you were encouraging churches to do. Well, May 3rd is, of course, the first uh, Sunday in May, and it comes right after the first, which is on a Friday. And that is the beginning of three phases of the President Trump's Opening America Again plan, and in phase one includes churches. It's also the week of the National Day of Prayer that typically culminates on May the 7th in Washington, D.C. Of course, it's be, it'll be a little different this year, but still, that will be a National Day of Prayer week. But it's also at a time where some states are beginning to turn the corner. It is a good time to begin, and I want to emphasize, begin the process of reopening churches across America. And of course, each church is in the best position to determine when and how to open the church in terms of in-person you know, meetings and services. And it's going to differ from place to place, church to, uh, to church, and locale to locale. But this is a good day to begin that process, to begin thinking about it, begin moving forward to that process. And so many churches are looking to that day to begin that process. And here's what we're asking churches to consider. One, begin the process of reopening in-person services, obviously with reduced attendance, social distancing, and all of those hygienic and health-related matters that you need to do. But begin the process. Also, if you're able at the same time, do parking lot services so that those that can't get in or don't want to go in can have that service in the parking lot. And then finally, continue the online service for those that have been able to do online service. In other words, do all three give people an opportunity for one of those three. And as time goes on, we'll be able to move forward with more people in the church sanctuaries as COVID-19 begins to, you know, dissipate. So it's the time to begin reopening church. We're calling it Reopen Church Sunday. And the website is reopenchurch.org or lc.org. Very good. So when we're talking about the first phase, there is a lot of confusion because there are so many different lockdown guidelines from mayors and counties and states, and every state is a little different. What is happening as of May 3rd? Is there any unanimity in the in, in the guidelines? Because you have states, for instance, like Texas and Georgia that are beginning to open up. You have other states that are still very, very strict on locking down. How would that affect churches in the their move to try to reopen even a little bit on May 3rd? Well, that's a good question. And so that's why it's going to vary from different place to place in in part. And then the other situation is whether or not uh, churches want to, 
if that's the hill for them to die on, they have to make that decision. And I mean, that is, is are the restrictions in their particular locale so egregious uh, that they're just, you know, ready to start challenging? Because frankly, none of these restrictions on the churches are constitutional. Mm. I haven't seen one that's really constitutional. We've had courts that already said, you can't ban parking lot churches. We've also had a court Saturday night that said in Kansas, you cannot ban churches to only having 10 people. That's the government literally crossing the line of the First Amendment, both free exercise as well as establishment of religion. The government can't, has no authority to tell us the form of worship or how we worship. And so consequently, lots of those restrictions are unconstitutional. Obviously, churches need to do what they can to protect the health and welfare of people, and certainly churches are urged to do that. But there's two different things. One, there's a number of states where things are loosening up. Florida, for example, on April the 1st, declared all churches and synagogues, attendance thereat, to be essential. So that's already resolved in Florida. and other states, like you mentioned, that's happening as well. There's other states, however, like Virginia, and in fact, we just filed suit in Virginia. Um, and so those kinds of states are still locking down, and those kinds of states still need to have constitutional challenges. And so we're there to help walk through that process, maybe even challenge some of these laws where we need to do so. Well, very good. I know. I want to talk about some of these cases that you've taken on. You mentioned the one in Virginia. You are suing Governor Northam, Ralph Northam, for criminalizing worship. This goes back to the case involving Lighthouse Fellowship Church and the governor violating the church's religious freedom by targeting churchgoers on on Palm Sunday. What happened? Can you tell people a little bit about this case? Yeah, this is a church that does not have internet, does not even have the ability to broadcast online, and many of the people it serves have no internet or smart tablets or phones. Some of them have come out of drug addiction in the past or prostitution. For these people, the church is their only family. Um, Palm Sunday, they had 16 people in a 293-seat sanctuary. That was six people over Governor Northam's uh, magic number of 10. And so they sent the police authorities on Palm Sunday, and they charged the pastor with criminal charges that would have a penalty of up to a year in jail and a $2,500 fine. And then on Palm Sunday, as these uh, police officers entered the church, we're talking about 16 people in a nearly 300-seat sanctuary. So they were really far spread out much more than the six-foot distancing that we always hear about. They threatened, if any of you come back on Easter, the next Sunday, we will do the same to all of you. So if they had 11 people, or they didn't even give a limitation, but assuming that they had 11 people, they said you would all get criminally charged. So these people were so frightened that they just stayed home, and they missed Easter. There was no other alternative for them. There was no parking lot capability. There's no online service. These are people that missed their Easter because of this intimidation. So we have filed suit against Governor Ralph Northam. He is the same governor who on Good Friday, Good Friday, he signed into law very radical, um, very liberalized abortion laws that make killing innocent children easier. He did that on Good Friday of all days. And then the next, uh, you know, just before that, he had arrested these people and literally criminalized the, the pastor and Christians. And he's doing that all over the, the Commonwealth. Now, if you go to any of the commercial stores, Walmart, Kmart, Home Depot, Target, whatever, 
those parking lots are jammed. In fact, <laughs> the day before we filed suit, we actually took photos. In one, there was like 268 cars in the parking lot in the middle of the day. And when you go talk to these people, it's like it's Christmas time in terms of the kind of busyness that they have. And there's no problem there. Yep. They're allowed to do that. Liquor stores are allowed to do whatever they want, pack their businesses, pack the parking lots, but not churches. That's unconstitutional. Well, you know, it's interesting, Matt, when you met, that's so true about Walmart. It's true at our Walmart, too. I just laugh. Nobody's socially distancing. Almost nobody are wearing masks anymore. It's kind of a joke, but I think people are tired of it. But when you mentioned the liquor stores, something popped into my head, because one of the things that I've heard some of these governors say is they the reason they've said liquor stores are essential is because they've been advised by some of these, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous type, you know, counselors and so forth that you can't, you know, this would be very harmful to people who are struggling with addiction and, you, you know, these sorts of arguments. And I'm thinking, but this church is ministering to people who are struggling with addiction. Right. How can you even make a distinction there? If you're concerned about people who are, are struggling with addiction, you ought to support this church in Virginia. Yeah. And in, in fact, it's the opposite with regards to liquor stores, prescription, as well as illegal drugs. There is a significant spike in use of alcohol, illegal drugs, and prescription medications such as pain or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine, all because of these lockdowns where people are locked down in their home, they can't get out, and then they have to go from press conference to press conference to find out what is next, and then they have no jobs or they're losing their income. All that you know, really means that the church is more essential than ever, and yet he declares that abortion is essential. You can kill unborn children. <laughs> He actually makes it easier to kill unborn children, uh, that alcohol uh, consumption is essential. But attendance at church, he says, is not. Isn't that We're crazy? going to criminalize you if you go. It's nuts. We're going to take a quick break. Matt Staver with us from Liberty Council. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible 
affordable medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thank you for being with us. And it's great to be talking with Matt Staver, who is founder and chairman of Liberty Council. Liberty Council is calling for Reopen Church Sunday on May 3rd. And this is an important time in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ as we begin phase one of opening up America again. And of course, it will vary according to your location, your state, your county, and so forth. But it is important to get the church back in business, as it were. You know, one of the questions, Matt, that I have, we were talking about one of the cases that you've uh, been overseeing, the, the suit that you just filed on behalf of this church in Virginia. But when you talk about emergency powers, I think there is some confusion on this particular subject because what has been put out there has been that you do have the government able to issue under the emergency powers, uh, you know, legislation, uh, some sort of guidelines dealing with quarantine, dealing with isolation. It has to be uh, short, you know, short term. It's not something they could invoke forever. But one of the things that's come up is churches can be included in some of these lockdowns as long as you are not specifically targeting churches. That is, churches is a part of all of the other groups out there or businesses that are shut down. But I don't know how you can really say that's what's going on here when you do have abortion clinics and liquor stores considered to being essential. You're not really treating everybody evenly, are you? No, you're not. There's two things. Obviously, you can't discriminate against churches. So if you allow the parking lots to be jammed of these other commercial operations or liquor stores with no social distancing, you can't tell people you can't worship. That's clear. But on the other hand, understand none of those have a constitutional right to exist. Liquor stores don't, Walmart, Kmart, Lowe's, none of those have a constitutional right to exist and assemble. Good point. Churches do. They not only have a constitutional right under the Free Exercise Clause, the government, the Commonwealth of Virginia or any state, for example, has no ability to declare what's orthodox or to dictate how you must worship. In other words, they can't say, we're going to close you churches and you can go worship online, or you can't do this or you can't do that. That's beyond their authority. So, yes, during states of emergency, different restrictions can come into play. However, the Constitution never goes out of play, and there is no pause button on the First Amendment or any other constitutional right. So churches always have that. They have a preferred right to exist over these other commercial operations that don't have an independent, standalone constitutional right that's therefore a reason. And that's why our founders put it as the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. That's a really important point. Absolutely. So some of the other cases that you've taken on, and you've had a lot, I guess, a flood, you've said, of new clients, churches in 30 states. I mean, it's an incredible time. But one of the churches you have been uh, helping out is Maryville Baptist Church in Kentucky. Can you talk about where that case stands right now? Yeah, listen to this. On Good Friday, the the mayor, the governor, Bashir, said that if anybody goes to the churches, including the parking lot churches, on Easter, he would send up the police, take down the license plates, and then issue a notice of quarantine. This is Good Friday. On Saturday afternoon, a federal judge in Kentucky blocked the mayor of Louisville from doing the same thing. Yeah. 
said it was unconstitutional. But that didn't stop the governor. Bashir went ahead on Sunday and did the same thing to our uh, people. And this is a, a church that has 700 seats. They had a small number in the sanctuary, but the police didn't even go in there. The state troopers went from car to car uh, of those people who were out in the parking lot, including those who were sitting in their vehicle for the parking lot service that they were listening to, and they placed notices of quarantine on each one of the cars. A few days later, the governor sent each one of those car owners a letter saying that they and anyone who was in their vehicle, anyone they came in contact with, had to go into a mandatory quarantine, that they couldn't leave the county, that they, in fact, had to take their temperature at the same time every single day and report it to the county board of health. Now, these are people that have no symptoms. They just went to the church parking lot. They could have gone down to the local Home Depot, turned on the Christian radio, and no problem. But because they were in a church, they got targeted. As a result of that hitting the media, some people went back to work on Monday and Tuesday, and some of the people at their uh, their superiors said, don't you attend that church that was just in the news? They didn't ask any questions about whether, you know, were they there that Sunday or were they in the, in the parking lot? They got, some of them got furloughed and uh, one just got fired, um, in fact, uh, just a few days ago. Oh, so my goodness. All because of this governor, just like in Virginia, essentially, and, and this is not a hyperbole, criminalizing Christianity. Again, those same people could have driven within a mile. And we have photographs of the parking lots filled. Everybody knows this. If you, if you drive around these, these stores, they're jammed. Mm. And they could have gone there, turned on the radio, listened to the pastor online or however they wanted to do it, and there would be no problem. The entire church could have done that. But because they were in a church, the governor targeted them. So we have a lawsuit in that case as well. That is awful. People losing their jobs just because they attend the church, even though they hadn't verified whether or not those people were even at the church at the time this occurred? Yeah, exactly. That's Good. right. Because they say, well, don't you go to that Maryville Baptist Church? Yeah, that's my church. And so then they get furloughed. And then um, one one just a few days ago got fired. Now, the furloughed, we don't know if they're going to ever come back to work. Uh, we don't know mm. if they're going to bring them back. But they're laid off right now. And obviously others, um, like one, got fired. Another one is being threatened to be fired for having um, been a member of that church. That's insane. I have a legal question for you as well. There was another case just within the last couple of days where uh, went on viral online. There was a video of a mom in an Idaho park who was trying to just be at the playground and take a stand and say, come on, we're outside. Let us be here. And was hauled away by cops and handcuffs. One of the things that came up, though, was the fact that when you look at the statutes in Idaho, for example, the quarantine and isolation power that the government has has to do with sick people or people they know were yeah, exposed. Exposed to a virus that could be deadly. How in the world do they even justify legally shutting down the country on those grounds? And that's the thing. When it goes back to your other question, you know, it's usually that people who are sick get quarantined, and everybody can understand that. Yeah. But what's happened here is the entire country has been quarantined. In in some states, you know, you're you're stuck at home, uh, and your business is declared non-essential. Here's the other thing: people don't really realize that elective surgeries have been canceled. Elective medical treatments canceled. Now, I used to think of that as maybe it's plastic surgery. Maybe it's a cosmetic. No. I have a cardiologist friend. He's at home walking his dogs because he can't do his cardiology uh, surgery. All that's gone. I have a friend who has prostate cancer. Everything has been canceled. Others that have uh, breast cancer, completely 
canceled, cancer surgery. I have a friend who has a broken foot, cannot get in to get that done. Uh, there's 40,000 people in the healthcare profession that have been laid off in March and more in April. The, they're, they're warning that hundreds of thousands of people could be laid off. Why? Because the hospitals and the surgical centers are not doing the surgeries. I don't think that of them as elective. You know, a herniated disc, a right. broken leg, cancer, heart uh, valve replacement. I don't consider that elective, but that falls in the elective category. And all of this has just literally been shut down over these overreactive restrictions, and the entire country essentially has been quarantined. It's really kind of backwards from the way it should be. Well, it's crazy because the hospitals are losing money hand over fist. So if we ever do see the materialization of these alleged millions of COVID-19 cases, where are they going to be treated? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. And many of them, and I have a lot of friends in the healthcare profession, and they're being laid off, furloughed. Um, they literally are dropped down to two days a week because they were anticipating all this, uh, all this influx of COVID-19 from these models like Bill Gates had that were completely flawed, wildly off track, including yep. the WHO. And they didn't materialize. And so consequently, they banned all these what they call elective surgeries. But that is life-saving kind of surgery. People's cancer is growing right now. People that need heart surgery, they're not getting it. And you just name it. Two and a half years ago, I had a, a serious weightlifting injury. I needed to have, for optimal recovery, surgery within two weeks of the injury. Fortunately, I got it. I fully recovered. If I had had that now, I'd be permanently damaged for the rest of my life because I could not get the medical treatment necessary. Man, it's terrible. You know, another issue that comes to mind, and we're going to have to see how this plays out, but with the advent of Ramadan, President Trump got a hard mm. time for saying, oh, I don't know if these politicians are going to treat the mosques the way that they treat the churches. And it's interesting because I have seen some news stories of mosques who have declared, we're going to stay open. It's Ramadan as usual. We're going to get together. We're going to yeah. do our thing. I, how, are you keeping an eye on that to see if there is a double standard that emerges? Yeah, we are. And I think you're going to see that in particular states like Michigan and other places, yep. you know, where there's a heavier uh, Muslim population or in certain places where they just, uh, they don't want, they want to treat them differently. And that's a constitutional problem as well. Um, you, you treat Jews one way and Christians uh, one way, and then, you know, Muslims a different way. That's that's another thing that's unconstitutional. So many of these things are unconstitutional, including the 10-person the limit that they've imposed. And New Mexico has five. A federal court last Saturday night said that 10-person limit was unconstitutional. Government doesn't have that authority to, to tell churches only 10 people, yet at the same time, there's no limit on the liquor stores or the other commercial operations. Yeah, well, and you know, most Christians and most churches have tried to be compliant with the request. I think when it really falls apart is when they start acting like a bunch of jackbooted thugs, in yeah. which case people say, well, wait a minute, not every church is created equal like your client. We don't have online capability. We have people we need to minister to in person. And, you know, let's get the churches back open as quickly as we can. And that's, I mean, that's really the fundamental thing that you're pressing here with Reopen Church Sunday, Matt, is exactly. the fact that churches are essential. We are absolutely essential. They're absolutely essential. There's 500,000 or so churches in America, and they're all different sizes and shapes, and they are very essential, many of them more essential, so much that when the doors close, the community groans in their absence. They do more than music and a message on Sunday. They do counseling. They feed people. They help people. They are that lighthouse, that refuge, and literally when they close, people grown in their absence. And so we're saying, let's begin to turn that corner. Mar or May the 3rd is 
open, reopen church Sunday. We have guidelines that you can follow in terms of worship options, in terms of the three different options I mentioned, and there's others, you know, in, modified in-person, reduced attendance, parking lot service, online service. But we also have other health guidelines to follow, including what do you do with small children? All Good. of that's there at reopenchurch.org. Perfect. Reopenchurch.org is the website. Matt Staver from Liberty Council. Always good to talk to you, Matt. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, the nation's report card is not looking so good. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has called some of the results stark and inexcusable. The assessments show that eighth graders scores in U.S. history and geography have been tumbling since 2014 and across the subjects tested. A quarter or less of students scored at or above proficient. DeVos said this, in the real world, this means students don't know what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were about, nor can they discuss the significance of the Bill of Rights or point out basic locations on a map. What should we make of these scores and what they might mean for the future of America when you have students who don't know U.S. history and civics the way they should? We're going to talk about this today with Professor Jeffrey Sikinga, who is executive director of the Ashbrook Center and professor of political science at Ashland University. So good to have you with us, Jeffrey. How are you? Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. What are your thoughts on the nation's report card scores? This is really embarrassing, I would say, in many ways. Yeah, it's a, it's a very bad result. Uh, Secretary DeVos is right to call it inexcusable. It's, uh, it doesn't bode well for our future. You know, these are the future citizens and leaders of our country. And as you were just saying, the results show that they don't know as what they need to know about our country. Exactly. So, but you've said this is a long-term problem. It's not like this is the first year this has ever happened. How long have we seen these kinds of terrible scores? Well, unfortunately, it's been about 25 years. The first of these uh, report card tests were given back in 1994, and the results then, unfortunately, were about the same as the results today. So (laughs) we've known about this problem for two, almost three decades now, and have not yet been able to correct it. Why is that? Is it fundamentally the textbooks that are being used, the teachers, the emphasis? Where, Where would you lay blame for these scores? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it has a number of causes, and I think some of those, what you just mentioned. One of them is definitely that history and civics have been downgraded in too many school systems. There's no question about that. And the results show that. You know, the eighth grade results in history for this year for U.S. history, 15%, one five, were proficient. That, com- that compares to 50% in math. So it means, that it, it means that if we teach students and we put emphasis on the subjects, they can do better. But we are not giving enough emphasis to uh, U.S. history and civics in too many school systems. Right. So I'd say that's, that's certainly one cause. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about the interpretation of American history and the degree to which that's a problem? Because if you have an eighth grader who is getting American history through the lens of some radical progressive who is saying, oh, America's terrible, it's Howard's Inn, all the, all the rest of those kinds of views, not letting the kids, for example, study the Bill of Rights for themselves, read the Declaration of Independence, read the Constitution, and be able to examine those original documents individually. Uh, it, it, I mean, obviously, that would affect scores. But to what extent is that happening where you hear about students who are really reading the original documents unfettered by any sort of interpretation from somebody with a political agenda? Well, the good news, it is happening out there. There are a lot of great teachers who are doing it. But unfortunately, as you say, so much of U.S. history and civics now is taught by textbooks. And as you were just mentioning, those textbooks are boring. Often, they just present history as a sort of unconnected facts, yep. or what's even worse, they're biased. Right. Well, that's and the it, problem. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's impossible. You know, think about it if you're an eighth grader, right? <laughs> Why should you care about something that doesn't seem to be part of a bigger story? And when you're told that story, you're told it's ugly. Yeah. Why should you care about something that's like true. that? That's true. That's very true. I, and you have written about this in an op-ed that a lot of today's students are unaware of the true miracle of our country's founding is the way I think you put it. Can you extrapolate out that, that idea that what you would like to see students actually know about America? I would love for them to go back to read the original documents not to read about them, but to read them. And we know that can work. If they go back, we've seen it in teaching our students. If they go back and they just start reading the words of the Declaration of Independence and they start having a conversation about those, they see those words come to life. They start to see the real meaning and significance of those words. And it opens their minds to a whole nother possibility. And and they start to wonder. And, And that's the real beginning of education. So uh, there's, we, we know that there's a system, uh, a method that works, um, but unfortunately, too many of our school systems are not using it. Yeah, that's a shame. And, and do you think that there could be improvements in the way that history is taught? Because I, I recognize I was a history major, so I know history can be taught very well and it can be taught very poorly. But do you have ideas on how to make history, you know, one way, obviously, is to read the original documents. But it is challenging to gather a classroom full of 13-year-olds and make American history sing for them. But you know, what are some ways teachers really could get kids more interested in history and the history of their own country? Well, I have a 15-year-old, so I know something about that problem. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things you can do is when you replace those textbooks with primary documents, you need to understand, and the great teachers know this, right? They love their subjects, they know their subjects, and they love their students. That's always the quality of a great teacher. Yep. And they engage their students in real conversation. So I, I would love to see a turn toward that kind of approach to U.S. history and civics education. Not, not just that education is information, and definitely that it's not indoctrination, but that it's thinking, it's conversation. And students love, especially eighth graders, they love to have those kind of conversations. They want to know, but they don't want to be told. Right. They want to discover it for themselves, and great teaching can do that. Well, can you tell us a little bit about how the Ashbrook Center uses this kind of approach? Because I know that you have some teachers, high school teachers, middle school teachers in one of your programs that really does emphasize history from the perspective of those who made history. What do you do there at the Ashbrook Center that that makes a difference? 
we've we've discovered now um, over the last 10 or 15 years we've developing programs for students, for teachers, for citizens. What we've discovered is we want to tell the story of America to, to these folks. We want them to see the, how they fit into this larger story. And we know that it's a story of freedom, yep. of, of freedom from our founding and a struggle to live up to those founding principles throughout our history. And when we teach that and we let people see that story and discover it for themselves, their eyes really do open and they start to really love the subject. And even more importantly, in some ways, they really begin to understand and appreciate their country. That's good. That's what we need. What about in the realm of civics? Because you have U.S. history on the one hand, but also the study of civics. You know, what do you think ought to be emphasized in particular to middle school students about civics and how they should understand that as Americans? Yeah, again, I think it should, civics should really be taught almost as part of history. You know, the great questions of civics, who has what power to do what, what should the president do, what should Congress do, what should the states do, all those kinds of questions, they come alive in real particular historical moments, yep. almost like the one we're living in now. Yeah. What should governors be doing versus what should the president be doing? You, you, I don't think we should teach them in abstract. We should teach them in the world that they actually live in, which is historical moments. Yeah. And we've seen that that really brings it alive for students in a great way. Do you think it matters much? I was noticing in some of the news stories I was reading about this year's testing, they did it on tablets this year. And, and you know, more and more you have the encroachment of technology into public education, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But do you think when it comes to teaching history that it is advantageous also to have these students really write essays and have more of a long-term approach from a thinking perspective on explaining their own thoughts and their own interpretation of history so as to understand it better. Definitely. We, um, so much of what we do in life as adults, as citizens, is reading, writing, and thinking. And anytime we can encourage our students to do that, we need to. So I think that's another reason to go back to those primary documents. You know, it's not easy for an eighth grader to read the Declaration of Independence and understand it. Yep. And that's exactly why they should do it. <laughs> yeah. So they can grapple with those challenging things, learn them and have a real sense of accomplishment like, oh, yeah, I can understand this. I can read deeply and I can think and I can write about this. That's excellent. Well, Professor Jeffrey Sikinga from Ashbrook Center and Ashland University. So good to have you here and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks again for having me, Janet. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for being with us. And we'll be back right after this on Janet Mefford Today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact on the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. Sheltering in orders across the country are spiking the number of unplanned pregnancies and the preborn call centers inundated with girls calling us. Contrary to government mandates to stop elective surgeries, Planned Parenthood remains open, consuming scarce medical supplies, all the while aborting babies. Our clinics are offering free, Christ-centered alternatives to these women in this time of crisis, but our clinics need your help. 
now more than ever. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and a direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in this time of need? Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. If you're a medical professional, here's a way to move from success to even greater significance. Mercy Ships has an urgent need for pediatric registered nurses. You'll be joining dozens of volunteer medical professionals who've been blessed by the opportunity. I think all nurses should do something like this. To serve the unserved is one of the most beautiful experiences. Get more information by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Mercy Ships, bringing hope and healing to the world's forgotten poor. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's very interesting to me to see doctors beginning to speak out about the lockdown, even as you have people flocking to the beaches of California. And here where I am in Texas, some of these businesses are opening up and I made a retail to go purchase over the weekend. I said, I got to support my stores. But it's important for people to be able to get out and work again, especially in light of the fact that the data is coming in supporting the fact that the lockdown isn't necessary. The lockdown is not making a huge difference in the death rate and you know, when we started this whole thing and nobody knew exactly what the coronavirus would wreak as far as the havoc upon our country, now we have better data. Now we know what the models falsely predicted, millions of deaths and all of this doom and gloom, and it didn't materialize. And it's been interesting to see some of the data being compared between countries like Norway that are locking down versus Sweden that aren't locking down. And this was something that came up in a press conference last week. I thought this was very interesting. Two doctors, Dr. Dan Erickson and Dr. Artin Masahi own seven accelerated urgent care facilities in Kern County, California. They put together a press conference going through some of the data with their expertise in areas like immunology and so forth. And it was fascinating. And I wanted to play some of this for you because one of the things that they stressed was that the lockdown ain't working. It's not necessary when you're looking at the data. And I want to go to Dr. Erickson first, talking about some of the unintended secondary consequences of locking everybody down. This is cut one. When I talk to ER physicians around the country, what's happening? Well, because COVID has become the focus, people with heart disease, people with cancer, hypertension, and various things that are critical are choosing not to come in based on fear. So what that's doing is causing the health system to focus on COVID and not focus on a myriad of other things that are critical because we don't have the staff there and major, the major component is fear. People are saying, I don't want to go get seen by my doctor. What if I get the COVID? So uh, there is a, a lot of secondary effects to COVID that aren't being talked about. And so we'd like to kind of look at how, the, how we've responded as a nation and why we responded. Our first initial response two months ago was a little bit of fear, 
We decide to shut down travel uh, to and from China. These are good ideas when you don't have any facts. We decided to keep people at home and isolate them. Even though everything we've studied about quarantine, typically you quarantine the sick. When someone has measles, you quarantine them. We've never seen where we quarantine the healthy, where you take those without disease and without symptoms and lock them in your home. So some of these things, um, from what we have studied from immunology and microbiology, aren't really meshing with what we know as people of scientific minds that read this stuff every day. Okay, isn't that interesting? He's making the same point that many of us have been saying. Why are we being locked down for weeks on end when we're healthy? Just like I asked Matt Staver a little while ago, where does it say in the law that the government has an indefinite amount of time that they're allowed to shut down, quarantine, and isolate people who they can't even prove were exposed to the virus? They just have to guess. We'll just assume millions and millions and millions and millions of people were exposed and are going to make somebody deathly ill at any given moment. It it is a little insane. Now, this is interesting. He talks about what the statistics are showing in his state of California. This is cut two. So if we look at California, these numbers are from yesterday. We have 33,865 COVID cases out of a total of 280,900 total tested. That's 12% of Californians were positive for COVID. So we don't, the initial, as you guys know, the initial models were, were woefully inaccurate. They predicted millions of cases of death, not of, not of prevalence or incidence, but death. That is not materializing. What is materializing in the state of California is 12% positives. Well, if we, we have 39.5 million people. If we just take a basic calculation and extrapolate that out, that equates to about 4.7 million cases throughout the state of California which means this thing is widespread. That's the good news. We've seen 1,227 deaths in the state of California with a possible uh, incidence or prevalence of 4.7 million. That means you have a 0.03 chance of dying from COVID-19 in the state of California. Isn't that amazing to hear that statistic? That's amazing. If you have 4.7 million cases of COVID in the state of California and 1,227 deaths, then you have a 0.03% chance of dying. That's the death rate or whatever you want to call it, the morbidity rate. Is that worth locking down the entire country? And then he talks about the huge numbers of people in the U.S. who have been tested for COVID-19. This is cut three. We've tested over 4 million. If you guys have studied globally what's happening, that's double what any other country. Germany's at two. I realize their populations are lower, but the fact that we were able to ramp up and do 4 million is pretty impressive, which gives us a 19.6% positive out of those who were tested for COVID-19. So if, if, if this is a typical extrapolation, 328 million people times 19.6 is 64 million. That's a significant amount of people with COVID. It's similar to the flu. If you study the numbers in 2017 and 2018, we had 50 to 60 million with the flu, and we had... Uh, we have a similar death rate. In the deaths in the United States were 43,545, similar to the flu of 2017-2018. We, we always have between 37 and 60,000 deaths in the United States every single year. No pandemic talk, no shelter in place, no shutting down of businesses, no sending doctors home. 
And that is significant, sending doctors home. We've talked about that before on the show, the fact that hospitals are struggling now because they're sitting there empty and they have all of this time to make TikTok videos. Have you seen these things, especially over the NHS in the UK? They're putting doctors on these carts and they're pretending to row a boat and they're dancing. I mean, if you're that bored, then take care of people who are having heart attacks and need cancer treatment but can't get it right now because everybody is so afraid. COVID, 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 when these statistics are showing it's pretty much like the flu in terms of the death rate. What are we doing? So Dr. Artin Massahi has asked whether or not social distancing was ever appropriate. This is interesting. Cut four. So initially when, when this data came out of a new virus that's causing, that's, that's lethal, they, they, went out, they went all out. And I think that was appropriate. But now that we have the data, we're, we're seeing that 96, 97% of patients completely recover. And those four patients that die, they have over 90% comorbidities. Let's run, let's run through that one more time. Out of 100 people, if 96 do fine, the four that die, 90% of those four have comorbidities. Heart failure, emphysema. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, they're on immunomodulating medications, they're immunodeficient, HIV. These are the people that are dying. You get some healthy people that die, but that's an infinitesimal number. We work with this every single day, and the numbers don't make sense to us. And they don't make sense to ER physicians and physicians all over the country. It's not just us. All right. Well, maybe there will be more and more of a groundswell of common sense coming into play as more of these doctors speak up about it. And I'm glad that these doctors are saying this because this is the kind of information that people want, especially given this story that I saw in the Daily Mail. Listen to this headline. Visions of a post-coronavirus America. Experts share their thoughts on how Great Depression era new deals for healthcare, housing reform and government programs could shape a new society. What are you talking about? The New Deal. Oh, yes. Let's go back to the New Deal and talk about FDR. And they say nearly 90 years later, the U.S. is fighting a disease that presents the country with wrenching life and death challenges. Yet at the same time, it has served up something else as well. A rare opportunity to galvanize Americans for change. Does this sound familiar to you? And Doris Kearns Goodwin, the leftist, is quoted the historian who I think was found guilty of plagiarism. uh, And also Rahm Emanuel, who says, We basically have a 21st century economy wobbling on a 20th century foundation. We need to upgrade the system to have a 21st century economy in all respects. Do you see what the left is up to here? Of course you do. They want a Green New Deal. They want a technocracy. They want single payer. They want to usher in their progressive vision of a new America, fundamentally transform America. And it was Rahm Emanuel who originally said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. President Trump better get everything together quickly. And I think he's trying to do the very best that he can, talking about governors, allowing governors to do what they feel is appropriate for their states. But we need to ramp this up, folks, because that's where the left is is headed with all of this. You're, you're still having talk about, oh, we need to shut down through May. This isn't the same as the Great Depression. The Great Depression, look back, read Amity Schley's book, The Forgotten Man, and go through all of the history of the Great Depression if you don't remember it or you don't remember the history books. We had a stock market crash. and We didn't have uh, FDIC insurance on people's bank accounts. And there were all sorts of things that were not going on today that were going on then. We have other problems. But listen... What, what you need to do is open up the country and allow people to begin to get outside, quit arresting them for being in parks, and let people get back to work. 
that's going to be the best thing for the United States. Let people live their lives because the cure is worse than the disease. It's not that we want people to die, but we've got to understand what's really going on. We've got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. God bless you. We'll see you next time.